I want to invite you to look with me back to Matthew's gospel and chapter 14. Matthew 14 is where we're going to find ourselves and give our attention to a theme that perhaps you uh, might find unexpected in the remaining portion of chapter 14, but I find a thread um, threaded through these final sections uh, more than just Jesus' miracles, but a theme of retreat and finding our refuge in him. Uh, Jesus went on retreats, and I want to talk about that a little bit because the leading verse that we're going to be looking at is verse 13, where he went to a desolate place. We know that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray and pray all night long and select the 12 apostles. We know that Jesus, at his greatest time of crisis, went into the Garden of Gethsemane with his 12, but also then with three of the 12 and then by himself to isolate, to find solitude and solace in the Lord. I don't think any of us fault Jesus for wanting to get away sometimes. Uh, His ministry life was filled with crowds and people and demands and needs. And if you read the Gospels as the story of the three years of Christ in particular, at least in large measure, that's what the attention is given to. He's just moving from one phase of ministry to the next. But interlaced in those crushing ministry moments are times where he would move away, move away from the Pharisees who were plotting and conspiring to get him, to trap him or to kill him, to move into the presence of God. And I want us to just give a little bit of attention to this because sometimes we find ourselves in a religious guilt where we could say retreating for us uh, I just don't see it. When, when are we supposed to clock out? I don't know that that's spiritual to do that. First Thessalonians says, if you don't work, you don't eat. So we got to be working. And what about all the ministry work we're supposed to be doing on top of our labor to provide? In First Corinthians 15, Paul said, I'm steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So if always abounding is the call, then why are we supposed to clock out and rest? Uh, isn't it more spiritual to, be, spiritual to be busy and busy about the Lord's work? Well, I don't think retreat and busyness need to cancel each other out. I think the way that we're busy in the Lord is by taking some time to rest in the Lord also. One should not cancel out the other. We need to see the model of Jesus' ministry life as something we can learn from, something we can understand, something we can apply. When are we supposed to get away? How are we supposed to get away and why are we supposed to get away? Am I quite possibly giving you permission to go back out on your boat? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus is going to get in a boat. We're going to see. And uh, we need to understand the the important spirituality behind getting away. Some of you men are, man, I am so happy I came to church today. You preach it, pastor. Amen. We need to understand that Jesus is a model for us. People were polarizing away from him. 
People were moving away from him. They didn't like his parable message. They didn't like the idea of the dominance of the kingdom of God, the the bifurcation between the saved and the unsaved. The the dragnet is coming. The accountability is coming. He's just been preaching away at this. And people are saying, I want to back away. And he goes down to his hometown and he's preaching in the synagogue. And they're going, oh, we knew who you were. We're not going to take you seriously. And then we see that not only was his home polarized away from him, but Rome was also moving away from him. In paranoia, Herod Antipas, the representative for Rome, is scared of the accountability of Christ, scared of the message of Jesus. And then ultimately, in his panic, he kills and executes John the Baptist, which could tip us off as to why Jesus says, I need to take a time out myself. Look at verse 12. Let me just pick us up into the flow of this. It says, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. Whose body? That's John the baptizer's body his headless body, and they went and told Jesus. So they tell Jesus, Herod Antipas has killed your colleague, has killed the other preacher, has killed the other baptizer. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew and from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed the sick. And then verse 15 is also going to lead us to that word, a desolate place. Jesus, in his spirit, in that moment, when he hears of the death of John the Baptist, the burial of John the Baptist, he says, I need to get away. Why is he getting away? Is it possible that he wants to boat away out of the jurisdiction of out from under the jurisdiction of Herod, Bethsaida, the other side of Galilee, the other side of the top end of Galilee, a four-mile voyage Jesus is going to take will take him out from under Herod Antipas and maybe to a safer place. It's possible. Jesus was strategic. He wasn't someone who would just run into danger before it was time for him to be captured, before it was time for him to be killed. No one can... um, kill the son of God without the son of God laying down his life. He lays down his life. He takes it up again. John 10, we know that. So Jesus wasn't afraid of John or Herod Antipas, but he probably was being strategic. He also undoubtedly was grieving over his colleague. He loved John. He respected John. We know that. He lauded him as one of the greatest because of his humility greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus wasn't a coward. He wasn't running away from the front lines. He wasn't going AWOL. There was a good reason for Jesus going off the grid, for him to get away by himself. It's a rationale for retreat. And we're going to find a way to apply this to our lives. Reasons for retreat. Reasons for retreat. And throughout the remainder of this chapter, we're going to see Jesus on a couple of modes of retreat. We're looking first and foremost at reasons for his retreat. And I want to put out to you as point one that his reason for retreat, first and foremost, was to draw near to God, pursuing nearness with his father. He wanted to get away to get with God. And I want to say this by way of application up front. When we get away, we need to recalibrate, but we need to get away where we don't disengage from the Lord. When you say the phrase, well, I meet God in nature, 
you know, that can easily be a very negative thing to hear someone say because they're saying, I'm trying to get away from church. I'm trying to get away from God's word. I'm trying to get away from the accountability. I'm trying to get away from the expectation for me to show up on Sunday morning. But it also could be a very positive thing to say because God reveals himself in nature um, through solitude, through time of meditation, time of thinking out in God's creation. We're not checking out on God. We're checking into God. And I think Jesus was drawing near to God. He was withdrawing from the primary crush of mission, getting on a boat, putting a barrier of the waters of Galilee between himself and the crowds so that he could recalibrate, so that he could think through what he needs to do next. Now, did he go by himself? It says in the text that he went to a desolate place by himself. And I want to say that this is not a contradiction to the other gospel accounts of this. In Mark's account, um, Mark 6, 31, it says the disciples went with him in the boat. It says, and he said to them, come away by yourselves. Listen to that distinction. He's saying to the disciples, come away by yourselves. I'm going away by myself. Hey, get in the boat with me. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many are coming and going. And they had no leisure even to eat. Look, Jesus was going on retreat and he was doing it for himself. And he was calling the disciples to do the very same thing for themselves. You can go on a road trip and go on retreat and have people in the car with you and still be on retreat. That's what Jesus is doing. You say, well, Jesus is perfect. Why would he need a retreat? Doesn't he, isn't he vitally connected without sin? He's vitally connected to the father and having the Holy Spirit fill his life. Why would he need to get away? Because he's fully human. And because the need for retreat isn't just our need to deal with our own sin. Now that's a good reason to get away, to evaluate your life, examine your life, work on your own holiness. But Jesus didn't need to do that Jesus is modeling for us that as a fully divine individual, the only one who is fully God and fully man at the same time, his full humanity required rest, required food, required sleep. He could reach a place of I am at capacity. And if I don't come apart, then I'm going to come apart. Do you see what I'm saying? You you have to see Jesus getting away, not because he's dealing with sin, because he had no sin. He could not sin, but he's getting away because he's fully human. We, in like kind, need to understand this. We need to say that if Jesus' life was busy and it needed to stop, then ours can be as well. We have to readily admit in humility, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this on my own. I need to recalibrate, reset, and say to the Lord, I can't live within my own strength. It's a breaking point. And I think he was um, combating um, the idea of possible burnout, Uh, Burnout happens when you just do it on your own strength and Jesus is admitting that he needs to be refreshed. It's a non-legalistic thing. Mark 1.35 says that Jesus rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and he prayed. And I was reminded even a few chapters back where the Pharisees were coming after him because he had healed the man on the Sabbath 
In verse 15, Matthew 12, 15, Jesus, aware of this, they were conspiring against him to destroy him. He was aware of this, withdrew from there. He withdrew. Jesus withdrew. Perhaps he was concerned that Herod Antipas was going to make a play against him. Spurgeon says that once a tiger tastes blood, it wants more. And so he's getting away. He's getting away. When did Jesus' retreat begin? Right when he was in the boat. He was in the boat. If you ever take a long road trip, where does the road trip begin? It, well, it begins after you put the gas in the car at the holiday and you get your snacks and you sit down and you, you have your, you know, you're all set and you just hit the road. At that point, you feel stuff beginning to melt off of you if you're really on retreat. You say, do I need to do that? Well, if you're someone of, uh, in a position of responsibility, you know you carry your responsibility whether you're clocked in or clocked out. Even if you don't recognize it, it's there. You have to be deliberate. You have to be proactive to take yourself away. People join sports teams. People exercise. They exhaust their body so that it will match. Uh, it will take their mind off of things. Exhausted minds need exhausted bodies to reset together. Um, Perhaps you take up a hobby, you take up an interest, something that can take your mind away from your normal duties so that it can also rest. There are people who wear it like a badge. I only need four hours of sleep or three hours of sleep. And they're, you know, going nuts. But anyway, some people can do that. I can't. I need six, seven hours regularly. I need REM sleep. I know when I get it and when I'm not getting it. I exercise so regularly to keep energy level up. I have to shut it all the way down so that I can come all the way back up. Even to preach, I exercise so that I can have energy to preach to you and a spirit to, to give to you. And that's part of getting away. It's part of how I retreat. And you retreat not by just resting from your responsibilities, but by also going to the Lord in intimacy, in prayer, in devotion. It's all about your motivation when you get away. I think it's so important to do that. If you don't, you'll find yourself spiraling I'm just reminded of how many times the Bible and the New Testament talks about sports and marathoning or boxing or running or walking or how a Christian is an athlete, a farmer or a soldier. All these duties, work hobbies, like, you know, farming is work, but I mean, hobbies that would be akin to that, being in a military dynamic where you're engaged with um, rules and orders and regulations and things or, or you know, some kind of athletic um, sport. All these different things are important. As you give out in ministry, you have to put in to your own soul. Otherwise, you will be depleted. One final thing with this, and then we'll move into the flow of the text. Um, There was a story of two lumberjacks who were in a competition against each other. And uh, one lumberjack was cutting away and saying, I'm going to beat this other lumberjack and chop and chop and chop. And it was the most wood wins at the, at the end of the day. And so he said, I'm never going to stop. I'm going to keep chopping no matter what. And the other lumberjack was taking frequent breaks and would chop and come back and chop and come back. At the end of the time, which lumberjack won? It was the one that was taking the frequent breaks. Why? To the shock of the other lumberjack, he said, how did you win? He said, well, when I was taking my breaks, I was sharpening my axe. And that's what we have to do. We have to be sharp. We have to be strong. 
And periods of solitude can bring this about. Well, what happened to this story? Verse 14, it says, uh, well, 13, the crowds heard that Jesus was leaving. And Jesus, by the way, didn't tell the crowds he was leaving, I don't think. Um, they followed him on foot from the towns. There were 204 villages across the top of the Galilean region that were spanning from the west side of Galilee across the top over to the east side, which is Bethsaida, which is the desolate or the original Greek word desolate mean desert place. The desert was on the other side. It was a four mile voyage going across and the townsmen of Galilee were saying, we want to be there. And so it ultimately ended up to be 500 men, 5,000 men, and which means you have wives, you have kids. So it could have been 15,000 people there. And what you see is there's talk of these, um, of Jesus and Jesus is leaving and he's in the boat. And so we're going to, we're going to foot race along the top portion of the sea of Galilee. We're going to, we're going to be in the, the rugged terrain, looking down at this boat. And we're going to try to outrun Jesus to meet him on the other side. Now, I don't know how long this run was, but it was like 5,000 people. And, and they're multiplying the number by talking to other people in the towns. And so I don't know how many people it began, but it ended up being five to 10 to 15,000 people, this multiplying community that Mark's gospel says were waiting for Jesus when he got to the other side. It's like the Boston Marathon just ensued and people just showed up and joined going across the way, looking down, going, oh, there's the boat. That's Jesus. I'm watching. I, that's, that's the picture, watch this, of the word of God traveling on the water and we want to meet the word of God on the other side of Galilee. This is hunger. This is appetite to be with Jesus. So what's Jesus going to do when he steps off the boat? I'm ready for my retreat. My cabin awaits you know, the fire is crackling in my mind. I'm ready to get away and boom, a conference breaks out. Retreat can also be in conference. Um, I just want to point that out. I don't think Jesus went off of retreat when he met the people on the other side. The retreat was during the time on the water. Maybe the water was rough, so it stalled his journey, or maybe it was so placid without wind that it made it slower. We don't know. But the crowd was there waiting for him on the other side, and he was ready to give again. He had taken from the Lord. He'd received from the Lord what he needed so that he could pour out again. You see this? He had compassion on them. He had compassion. He was filled, his battery was charged and recharged, and he healed their sick. They're like, here we are, Jesus, and we need your help. We need your help. So was the re- retreat um, cut short? That's a big question in my mind. Well, he was providing needs and the needs multiplied. What I want to suggest to you is that Jesus made this into a conference. And he was on retreat, inviting all these people into his retreat. Verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Jesus is catching on to what the father's will was here. These people are on retreat with me. We're all in the desert together. We're all in a desolate place. We've all left our responsibilities behind us. We've all left our, our, our troubles behind and we're on retreat together. Now it's a multi-thousand retreat. It's a picture of heaven on earth where you're uninhibited, you're unhindered from the stuff that you've left behind and you're there to be with Jesus. 
And so the disciples, as uh, good conference uh, workers, they're coming up to Jesus, who's kind of the head of the conference, and saying, hey, we've got a logistical need here. They're going to need to eat. When they were running and doing their Boston Marathon thing, watching you uh, um, sail to this area, they didn't take food with them. They just had to pick up and go, grab kids and go. Everybody's hungry. And so what we think you should do as kind of the head of the conference is send everybody back to their hotels for the night. Um, Go back to the villages, go back a few miles and uh, call it a night because uh, it's evening time, it's time to eat and they're going to be very cranky if their food need is not met. And I don't think this was their lapse in judgment. They knew Jesus could turn stones into bread. They knew he could turn water into wine. They knew he was a miracle worker. He just healed a bunch of sick people. So they know that Jesus could meet their, the thousands' needs um, in terms of their hunger and appetites. But, but the disciples were following the lead of Jesus. And Jesus was normally operating in the natural means and provisions that God gives in our daily life, just like he, he does today. He normally meets our needs in physical ways. They weren't, they weren't presuming upon Jesus' miracle ministry. What they're doing is they're calling Jesus to exercise his authority, his divine right to send them away. They're not doing it. Um, they're saying, Jesus, you do it. And Jesus says, they need not go away. Hey, they're part of this. We're supposed to be here. And by the way, you give them something to eat. You investigate this and find out what you need to do. This is one of two time markers that are called evening in the Jewish mind. This is the pre-dinner time marker, 3 to 5 p.m., not the uh, 7 to 8 p.m. time marker. This is early evening. You give them something to eat. He wants them to investigate the situation. He wants them to see what's happening. A spontaneous retreat has taken place and they need something to eat. By the way, being on retreat isn't being an aesthetic. It's not being a monk. It's not just being alone. I said this in the first service. If I went on a retreat, I've been instructed to do this. Go away to your own cabin by yourself and isolate. I would crawl the walls and just go nuts. I'd go bananas if I was just on a retreat by myself. Some of you go, that's what I want. I want the candle and I want the book. You know, that drives me crazy. The only place I can find rest outside of the normal like office routine is to go into a coffee shop with music in the background and people. That's how I can focus. So we're all wired differently. We all have to find it differently. Jesus is adapting in this moment saying, you're finding your retreat in me and we're all on retreat together. And he wants the disciples to see that that is the point. That's what's happening. Jesus is the provider. In Sunday school class, people say, well, that was a lapse of judgment. The disciples are being rude and sarcastic. They're not seeing that Jesus could do this miracle. I don't think that's really the case at all. Um, Theologians, on the other hand, um, liberal theologians have promoted uh, the idea that the miracle that needed to take place was a, a lack of selfishness. Everybody has a, a thousand people, 5,000 people have a massive change of heart and they pull out their lunches and begin to share with everybody else. That's the miracle. That's weird. I, that's nowhere in the text. This miracle is uh, one miracle of all of Jesus' miracles. It's the one that's repeated four different times and there's nothing in any 
of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that talk about sharing as being the miracle. But that's the liberal way of thinking. I read one liberal that I respect, actually, except for his liberalism. And he said that. So weird. Uh, And he said, you know, um, it could have been that food was stored in a cave and they all found it super strange. That's naturalism. That's the idea that God makes things happen, you know, just in natural ways, but not supernaturally. Um, But he obviously, this is a supernatural miracle. Sproul, like defeating naturalism, R.C. Sproul says it's impossible to get something from nothing by natural means. If over time there was nothing, there will still be nothing. Um, so anyway, Jesus could have, he, he, he could have done this any number of ways. There's also people who get hyped up on hyper experientialism. I'm not saying that something supernatural didn't take place. It did. It's documented in four different gospels. It's amazing, but it's happening in sublimated ways. We're going to see. I mean, this is just food that's being passed out and it keeps being passed out because it's miraculously made, but it's done in normal um, constructs with the beginnings of real food that's tangible, broken and blessed and then distributed. So it's sort of answering two different extremes. People worship naturalism. They just worship nature and they don't see God outside of it. And then on the other extreme, people are hyper charismatic and they worship the experience or the emotion or the hocus pocus. But all of that is is wrong. Jesus strikes the perfect balance um, showing that he is, as, as John 6 puts it, John 6, 28 and verse 34, he is the bread of life. He is the point of his miracle. The focus has to land on him. People need to seek him by faith to see what is going on. In Mark 6, 37, we see a little bit more commentary on this. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Should we spend a year's salary to hold this conference and have this food event happen? Is that what you want us to do? No, Jesus wants them to be clear that there's no food available. There's nothing here. There's nothing here. And so he sends them out to see the people and interact with the people and ask and go through all of the crowd to find out what is happening. In John 6, you get some more commentary. Jesus was really provoking their minds, the disciples' minds, to see that a miracle needed to take place. John 6, 5, lifting up his eyes. Then, and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, hey, Philip, come over here. And he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? How are we going to pull this off, Philip? What do we need to do? He's opening his mind. And it said, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So he wanted to get them thinking through what was happening. There's no doubt about that. And they ultimately, they found a boy um, with only five loaves and two fish. We see the, uh, what they found in verse 17 of Matthew's account. The other accounts talk about the boy that they found. Um, John 6, 9, talk about that. The crowds had no food, but one boy did. One boy packed his lunch. It would be Owen in my family who would have the lunch, but that's for another story. Verse 18 He said, bring them here to me. Bring the five loaves and the two fish. And what does he do? This is amazing. He's using literal food to begin with this miracle. 
He didn't need a starter kit, by the way, to start the miracle. But he wants to go in Jewish tradition. And the event is the miracle, but the event is also a God-centered prayer where he takes it to the Lord, to the Father. And he, it says he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He said a blessing. He said, bless God. It's an interesting way to see God, um, to see him as someone who would need to be blessed. I mean, he's the one who gives the blessing, but we reflect that blessing back to him. When we receive from him every good and perfect gift flowing down from the Father of lights, James 1, as he provides all of our needs according to his riches and glory, as he gives to us food, clothing, shelter, encouragement, answers to prayer, love, intimacy, strength, promises, friends, as he gives to us, we mirror reflect back to him blessing. And we say, you've blessed us, we bless you back with glory. And that's what Jesus is modeling. He's saying, we're blessing you, God, as provider, Jehovah Jireh. He's going to break the bread. He's going to do the miracle, but he wants the first priority to be to bless God. We're not into naturalism. We're not worshiping nature. We're not worshiping feel-gooding, do-gooding, or feeling good about ourselves and a change of heart. We're not worshiping that. We're not worshiping socialism and and these social gospel dynamics. We're also not worshiping the hocus-pocus, like, you know, like wild dynamics and histrionics and people being out of control and commanding things to happen and this sort of false gospel signs and wonders miracle ministry that no apostle is credentialed to do that. There's nobody in today's age that could be a credentials apostle to do that. We know that. So what does is, what is Jesus do? He strikes the perfect balance with real fish, with real bread to say, this is really God's provision. The providence of God has spoken. We have provision from God, our father, and I'm going to give him glory for that as this is distributed to you because God wants to provide in a unique supernatural way right now for you. And everybody sit down in an orderly way so you can see this. It's what Jesus is doing. He says, he looked up to the heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. It's just distribution. It's all coming through Jesus, through his miracle ministry. It's a supernatural ministry that's taking place. It's above the normal natural laws of nature. And he's just distributing and he's distributing through his ushers, which are the disciples. And, and, and they're just giving the food out. And it's inexhaustible food that's just coming in natural, normal um, distribution. Prayer, distribution, and then watch this, physical eating. Jesus could have said, you're not hungry. And everybody been fine. <laughs> he say, breakfast. Okay, there's breakfast. Uh, you're not hungry. You're not thirsty. No, he wanted everybody to eat. He wanted them to experience things in normal, natural ways, but understanding that Jesus is the provider. Jesus is the provider. Providence happens in our everyday life if we'll just look around and see it. God is providing for you all the time. Do miracles happen today? They can. They can, not by apostolic command, like in the apostolic age, which was validating the the ministry of Jesus, validating the early church. We have all the validation because the Holy Spirit has come and he's present with us in a unique way. The church is being built and dynamically happening. James 5 is where we call elders to come around when someone is desperate in sickness or or is out of sorts and needs, needs 
the hands of uh, leaders to be laid on that person. But that doesn't guarantee a miracle. It's only when it synchronizes with God's timetable that he makes someone supernaturally whole. Someone can be supernaturally healed in an unexplainable way, and that's what God does. We understand that from Scripture. We understand that as we see it happening in the normal um, sort of flow of Christianity. But God is always providing, whether through natural normal laws or supernatural ways, and we need to see him that way. He, he provided even the manna in Exodus 16, verse 8, it talks about evening and morning, how in the evening the quail would come, Exodus 16, 13, and then in the morning the dew would come all over the ground. And that was, that was the manna in the morning. So they would eat at normal times. In 2 Kings 4, 42, it talks about the man of God, Elisha, who came and distributed bread through his servant. He said, give it out. And the servant said, what? We only have one meal. Is this for 100 men? And in 2 Kings 40, or chapter 4, verse 42 and 43, um, it was distribute this in verse 44. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. This is just the way God works. He works through all kinds of amazing providences, sometimes supernaturally, but always by his divine providence. Think of um, examples in the Old Testament, the ram caught in the thicket. Why was that ram there? You know, when Abraham was to sacrifice his son, the ram was there as a replacement. Abraham um, was an incredible man of God, just operating according to God's timetable. Moses, who's this baby um, crying, and suddenly Pharaoh's daughter sees that baby and then raises Moses, and he's the um, savior figure of the Old Testament, leading the children of Israel in the Exodus one day. And using the shepherd's staff, this crook, as a conduit for miracles. A boy's slingshot, right? Where he kills and slays Goliath. And then all of Israel routs um, the Philistine army. And we already talked about Jesus turning water into wine. There was water there. And so he turns it into wine and finishes the wedding off that way. The incarnation itself, when Jesus was was, um, conceived by the Holy Spirit, think about it. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, but he's in the womb, going through the complete gestation period and born as a baby. It's incredible. These divine operations um, need to be recognized in everyday life. And that's not supernaturalism. That's not worshiping supernaturalism. Don't get so naturalistic in your thinking that you miss God's divine providence, the way he intervenes in circumstances, in conversations, in situations, and sometimes in miracles where he's working in our lives and he's evident and present. It's incredible. Providence then is providence now. All right, look at verse 20. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied. They weren't still hungry. The conference was a success. They wanted to be with Jesus and Jesus kept him with, kept them with him. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Why 12 baskets? Um, well, there's 12 apostles. Maybe that's symbolism there. There's the 12 tribes of Israel. I think really the primary reason for the 12 baskets was just to show that God's storehouse is inexhaustible. It's also a nod towards the physical realm. Um, Jesus has provided. They could say, well, we don't need the 12 baskets. Let's just leave them there. He'll just, we have Jesus, so he'll just be our dispenser. No, Jesus provides through normal means of provision. 
We are supposed to work to provide for ourselves. We're supposed to work so that we eat. We're supposed to be like the apostles collecting the 12 baskets full to provide, to be responsible for our own needs. We need to see provision that way. But it all was from the Lord, and it was more than enough even to the overfilling of what they needed in the moment. It was said that um, 1.2 semi-tractor trailer containers would be how much bread was um, manifest to feed 15,000 people. That's a lot of bread, and that's not even including the fish. There was so much there. God provided. God provided. It was unmistakable that God had provided. You say, I'm an introvert. I don't like crowds. I don't want to be there with all those people. I don't want, that's not a retreat for me. Well, I just want to point out the idea that when everybody is Christo-focused, when everybody is focused on the Lord, when you're in a crowd, you're still able to be recharged. When everybody's focused on themselves, when they're worried about their own life circumstances, when you're, when you're bound up within yourself and there's division in the group, that's a drain. When you're focused on the Lord, no matter how many people are there, that's a recharge. He is the bread of life. The story took a real shift from Jesus going on a private retreat to the one whom everybody was finding their retreat. You know, it's really a picture of heaven, isn't it? Look at the last verse. Those who ate, and those who ate were about 5,000 men. We don't know how many people ultimately were there with women and children, but it says women and children were there besides women and children. 5,000 men But let's not forget to talk about women and children, just like the church. Men, women, children from all different backgrounds, all different contexts. We're all here and we're together and we're on retreat with Jesus right now. He's the provider for all of our needs. He loves you. He's no respecter of persons. He just says, come one, come all. In heaven, all the nations will be present. Everybody's there. And it's unity and retreat and ultimate rest found in Christ Do you need permission to go on a break? Well, maybe, but don't go on a break from God. Get away to get with God. Get away to get with God. We're going to ask the men now. We're going to distribute the bread. This is a kind of well-timed message for the bread and the cup. It's an opportunity to symbolize our Sabbath rest in him, how we are trusting in him for gospel refreshment. And we're going to take some time to pray and Just re-consecrate your heart before the cross. Remember the death of Christ. He is the bread of life. He's given for you. He is your rest.